Wonderful. Glad to see you tonight at 7.30. Thank you for coming. We're going to conclude, uh, Lord willing, the study of biblical separation tonight. We're going to begin a new study. It's going to be a study of the doctrine of biblical prayer. I think you're going to find that a very uh, rewarding and hopefully uh, life-changing study. Before we get into our study tonight, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, for your people. Uh, we thank you for your doctrines, and we pray that you would minister to our minds and hearts this evening. And for that, we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we are uh, considering the final matters of uh, biblical separation, and we're winding it down. We said, first of all, there are certain things every believer must separate himself or herself from if they want to finish an award winner. Uh, obviously, things that are classified in the Bible as being sinful and evil, you don't want to be snuggling up next to those things, and you want to make a decision that you're going to separate yourself from things sinful and evil if you want to be an award-winning believer. Secondly, sometimes leadership must make separatist decisions in times to protect the purity of the church. It is their charge to keep the church pure. They need to keep their eyes and ears open to see to it that things that could creep in that could perhaps do destruction, they have to sometimes make uh, decisions of separation uh, to keep the church pure. Thirdly, we said leadership at times must make separate decisions to protect the flock. So the leaders must watch out for the flock. And if they see someone that's coming in and they're starting to propagate some strange, weird doctrine that can do some damage and harm, it becomes the job of the leaders to keep their eye on that and to silence it uh, and, 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 and shut the mouths of those that would uh, harm a flock. Now, the final consideration, and I think all of it could be summed up in this final consideration, is that both leadership and individuals must make separatist decisions pertaining to doctrine. Both leaders and individuals must make separatist decisions pertaining to doctrine. And let me say that the more we know of true biblical doctrine, the more we know of the Word of God, the more abler we will be in making proper biblical separatist decisions. Uh, we don't want to make decisions based on legalism or opinion. We want to make them on Scripture. So obviously, the more we know of Scripture, the better position we're in to make these kinds of calls. Now, there are seven biblical points of consideration that really have to do with doctrine. The first one is, we are to separate ourselves from those who are not sound in the faith. We are to make a decision that will separate ourselves from those not sound in the faith, who manifest personal traits that Paul describes in 2 Timothy. And I'd like you to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, and you'll see um, uh, Paul's own uh, mandate in regard to this. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul talks about the fact that in the last times, in the last days, uh, there are going to be uh, people who will pretend to be in a right relationship with God, but they're not. And the description of them is they love themselves, they love money, they're boastful, they're arrogant, they're revilers, they're disobedient to parents, they're ungrateful, they're unholy, they're unloving, they're irreconcilable, they're malicious gossips, they don't have any self-control, they're brutal, they hate those that do good, they're treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasures rather than lovers of God. And here's what you have in verse 5, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power and avoid such men as these. Now, when we see people who are not sound and stable in their faith, and they're pursuing a, a life that is undisciplined, and they're not at all interested in what the scriptures say so that they can light up their lives with the word of God, then it becomes our responsibility to make a separatist decision. 
So there's the first uh, principle we want to keep in our mind. Secondly, we are not to assist those who are doing ungodly things contrary to God's word and will. I like a text in 2 Chronicles. I'd like you to go back to 2 Chronicles for a moment. This same principle shows up also in 1 Timothy, but I want to go to the 2 Chronicles 19 passage. In 2 Chronicles 19, this is an interesting verse of Scripture. In 2 Chronicles chapter 19 and verse 2, we read these words. Well, let's start at verse 1. The Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. And Jehu, the son of Hanani, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord? Now, there's an interesting concept. Should you be involved in helping people that are actually involved in hating God? Should you do anything that, that you, can, you, you would actually, uh, uh, actually get into a relationship with people who hate God? And, and the implication is if you do that, you anger God. It makes God angry. If his people would uh, get involved in assisting someone who's doing something ungodly, contrary to the word and will of God, is something that actually uh, stirs up the anger, anger of God. So certainly the principle that we would say is we don't want to assist those who are doing ungodly things. We don't want to be uh, supporting those that are doing things that are contrary to the word and will of God because that can actually anger God. Now the third principle is we're not to listen to and give honor to one who's preaching a works gospel. We're not to listen to and give honor to one who's preaching a works gospel. I want you to go over to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, because this to me is such a, a powerful, powerful passage of Scripture, and yet it seems to be one that is, is so neglected in, 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 in application. But in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 6, here's what we read. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But if we, but though we, but even though we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so I now I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to that which you receive, let him be accursed. Now Paul says, I play hardball when it comes to the grace gospel. And in this book of Galatians, he's basically going to say you're justified by faith apart from any works of the law. You're only made righteous with, by God by judicial edict. And you're going to see that again Sunday night, one of the most powerful, powerful passages you'll ever see in Romans chapter 4, Sunday night. Now, Paul was really upset with people who would try to come into the grace gospel and merge in works. And he takes a hardline position on this. He says, if somebody comes to you or somebody's presenting a gospel and they're trying to get this works into the gospel, you let them be accursed. That's strong language. You, you take a strong stand. You don't just sit there and say, oh, that's an interesting position that you have. Boy, I appreciate your opinion on that. You let them be accursed. You let them know they're believing something that's, that's devilish. Now, that can be very tough to do, but I want to tell you that is the mandate, I believe, that is from God. And there are so many churches that are actually propagating this idea. And I'll tell you a story of my own personal life where I got into this with my own grandmother. Now, my grandmother was going to a church, on my father's side, was going to a church 
a Nazarene church. I have no use for a Nazarene church. I'll tell you that right now. I'll let you know my position, and I'll let you know why. Uh, because, number one, they're not really interested in rightly dividing Scripture. Number two, they have invented man-made rules that aren't even in the Scripture. And number three, they teach people faulty things that affect people like my grandmother. So therefore, I don't have much use for a Nazarene church at all. But in any case, one Christmas, we were all gathering, and we were in school at the time, and I was studying uh, for ministry, and my grandmother was having all the family over to the house. So we go over to the house, and I said to Mary, before we go in, I am not going to get in any theology discussion here. I'm just going to go in here. I'm going to bide my time. I'm just going to uh, try to get along with everybody, have a nice Christmas, see the family, and leave. That's what my plan is. Well, I get in there, and I'm not in there uh, 20 minutes. And my grandmother, in front of everybody in the house, says, I suppose you believe that once you believe in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. In other words, once saved, you're always saved. And I'm standing there, and she says this in front of the entire family. I said, okay, the gloves come off right now. <laughs> and I proceeded to unravel her, and I, I loved my grandmother, but I unraveled her doctrine in front of the entire family to the point that her mouth was shut. She sat down in a chair and started weeping because I said, you are preaching an heretical gospel, and you're telling that to your whole family. You're preaching a gospel that is contrary to the grace of God. It's a system of works that you believe you can earn it or lose it. It's all invented by men, and you're trying to communicate this to your family. You're going to send them to hell with a wrong gospel. And I did not let her off the hook on that. She sat down, why are you doing this to me? Why are you doing this to me? I said, I'm not doing this to you. What's doing this to you is your wrong doctrine. And I believe, ladies and gentlemen, there comes a point where we have to say to people, look, you believe a lie. You're involved in something that's evil. It is not the gospel of the grace of God. And if somebody comes preaching another gospel, Paul's pretty clear on this, let them be accursed. And he doesn't say, well, unless it's somebody you like or somebody that's in your family, let them be accursed. Their doctrine is evil. It's corrupting the grace of God. And ladies and gentlemen, when you start corrupting the grace of God, you send people out with crazy theology. They don't know what saves them. And uh, they don't know, well, am I saved by faith? Am I saved by works? Am I saved by baptism? Am I saved by confirmation? Am I saved by all kinds of things they start bringing into this? Let them be a curse. Take a strong stand for the grace of God. Now, the fourth area that comes out is we're to carefully examine a person's theological beliefs so that we do not fellowship with that which is demonic. I want you to go to Second or First Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, and you'll notice verse 1. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I personally believe we are in the time when demons are taking over churches. That's what I believe. I believe this is clearly the parable that Jesus told of the mustard seed that grows to becomes this big, ugly conglomeration that's filled with evil birds. I think that is exactly what is being predicted at the end of the age. We're going to get into a time when, when we're going to be invaded by demonic things. And doctrine of demons is teaching of demons, and it isn't demons show up, it teaches through people. Now, how do you know... If you're involved in something that is demonic, well, you know by analyzing it in light of Scripture. And in this particular context, 
He talks about a legalism that's going to start being propagated by people that isn't even found in the Word of God. Forbidding to marry and advocating that you stay away from certain foods. Uh, That's a demonic legalism. So Paul says, look, you need to be careful in what you believe and who you're talking to because there's going to be a demonic invasion as we near the end of the church age. That, ladies and gentlemen, becomes great impetus for us to carefully, systematically study the scriptures, study the word of God. I go back to this point, and I know you've heard me harp on this point, but I I believe it's more and more relevant today. The only thing that we can know about God and about what he wants us to know is in the written word. The written word of God. It stands to reason that it becomes our responsibility then to really understand those 66 books. That's why we go straight through those 66 books. You can't just get a hit and miss view of the Bible. We've got to go straight through the Bible. Why? Because that's how we come to understand everything God would want us to know and understand. That's why we go through these books of the Bible. So it seems to me that as we're doing that, We sharpen ourselves so we can say, hey, wait a minute, that isn't sound. I'm reading a a book right now that was, uh, it's an interesting book. It's written by more of a philosopher than a theologian. But it's a book that tries to touch base with the idea of God and his sovereignty and everything like that. And every now and then I can say, because I know the scriptures, I can say, you're getting out there into humanistic never-never land. It's subtle, but that's where you're going. You're going to humanistic never-never-land. doesn't square with the Word of God. What about this passage? What about this passage? What about this passage? And that's going to become more and more prevalent. As the church age winds down, people are going to move away from the Word of God and move off into all kinds of weird things that are absolutely demonic. So we need to keep our eyes and ears open, and we need to stay sharp in the Scriptures so that we understand what we believe and we know why we believe it. Now that brings us to the fifth matter. We're commanded not to join forces with unbelievers in any religious or spiritual matter. We're commanded not to be unequally yoked with an unbeliever, whether it be a religious or spiritual matter. We're not to join forces with them. We're not to be one big ecumenical family where we just all get along because we all like religion. We need to draw lines, doctrinal lines. We need to stand for what's true and sound according to the scriptures, and that's where the lines need to be drawn. What's the scripture say, not what do men say? Now, the sixth point is we're never to promote unity at the expense of doctrinal purity, and I want you to get that point. We never promote unity at the expense of doctrinal purity. I want you to go to Jude. This is an interesting couple of verses in Jude. Look at verse uh, 3. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith. You contend earnestly for the faith system that was uh, once for all delivered to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turned the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ." Now, uh, Jude says, look, you must be very, very careful that you you are contending for sound doctrine. You're contending for the faith system. 
and you don't allow somebody to corrupt that system and move you away from that system, you must defend the truth and you must silence people. You must spot certain people that are moving away from what the Word of God is teaching and you must not let them do that because they're creeping in and they're going to cause havoc in the context of the church. And the point of this is never, never do we promote unity at the expense of doctrinal purity. Now, that takes on a whole lot of slants when you sit in my seat because you'll get somebody, for example, that'll come in and they'll say, well, I personally believe in we're going into the tribulation and we're going to go through the tribulation. And we'll say, well, you can believe that if you want. That's fine. You're not going to teach that here because we know what we believe and we know why I believe it. And we're not going into the tribulation. And you're going to be shocked the day that you don't go into the tribulation period. But you see, we have to be very careful because somebody say, oh, who cares? Just let them, just let them teach. Who doesn't matter what they believe. Yes, it does matter what they believe. And when you're trying to protect the church, it matters a great deal what they believe and what you allow to be taught to your flock because you want to make certain that what's being taught to the flock is sound and true because we don't say, let's just all be one big happy family. We don't care what you believe. Whatever your doctrine is, that's not the way it works. We don't promote unity at the expense of doctrinal purity. That's the point. And finally, we are never to encourage religious people who go beyond the scriptures, and we're not to even let them into our house. Now, as long as we're open to Jude, look at 2 John, verse 10. 2 John, verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house, and do not give him a greeting, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. You don't want to just get a bunch of religious people together and let's have a big religious discussion and all hear, hear everybody's opinions. That isn't right. God's not pleased with that. If somebody's coming and they're presenting another, another concept of teaching of Jesus Christ, then that is not something you want to go and say, let's just go hear a lecture and just so we can know what they believe. That is evil stuff in the mind of God. They're attacking his precious son. And so what John says here is, look, somebody comes to your house in this arena of religion, and they're attacking the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't let them into your house. You don't give them a greeting. You send them right down the road. You let them know they're on their way to condemnation. You don't give them any hint at all that you appreciate the fact that they stopped by to try to convince you of a lie that will send you and anybody else to hell if they possibly can. There's nothing cute about that. There's nothing funny about that. And that's why John said, don't let them into your house. It's interesting to me that John is often called the apostle of love. But I'll tell you what, love to John is always in the context of truth. Love and truth go hand in hand. So he didn't just emotionally love people and say, oh, I don't care what you believe and believe anything you want, I'll love you anyway. That was not John's view at all. And he took a, separate, a separatist position, especially if they tampered with the work of Jesus Christ. And there are plenty out there doing that. Jehovah's Witness will come to your door and do that. Mormons will come to your door and they will do that. Uh, I believe Seventh-day Adventists are also tampering with Jesus Christ. I think there are just a rift of these cults that are uh, tampering with the Lord. You don't want to let them into your house. You don't want to give them a hearing. You want to send them down the road and warn them of the condemnation that one day they're going to receive. Now, every one of these points that we just raised demands that we would understand doctrine, that we understand the scriptures. You're never going to take a positional stand if you don't understand the Bible. I mean, you won't know that it's wrong to 
let people come into your house who believe that Jesus is just a, a good man. You won't know that's wrong unless you know the scriptures that said that's wrong to let them come in there and propagate that in our home. Uh, so it, the more we know of the Bible and the more we know of doctrine, then the better off we are in being able to make the assessments that we need to make for true biblical separation. So as individuals, we have the responsibility to make separatist decisions. And then, of course, in a church, the leaders also have a responsibility. I want to conclude this study by a quote from Dr. Pickering, who wrote on the subject of biblical separation and used an illustration that he gave that I think is a really interesting illustration. Separatists through the ages have ever had a strong commitment to doctrine. If they've had to make a choice between loyalty to God's truth in his word and the continuance of personal fellowship with friends and cohorts, they've opted, from truth, uh, opted for the truth and broken fellowship. This is why separatists are frequently criticized. But should they be? Doctrine is important. The New Testament emphasized that doctrine has been revealed by God. It is not merely the invention of men. Doctrine is truth about God and his works. Paul in 1 Corinthians 2, 9-12 defends the divine source of his doctrine. Sound doctrine produces healthy Christian. Solid doctrine makes well-rounded, stable believers. Accurate doctrine will produce godly living. Jude made a pregnant statement about doctrine in June 3. He declares that doctrine is cohesive, it is exclusive, it is authoritative. And I want you, he says, notice especially in Ephesians 4, 1-16, the theme of that section is that of harmony in the body of Christ. But chapters 1 to 3 of the epistle are primarily doctrinal in nature. The practical exhortation to unity flows out of the doctrinal portion. Note the two phrases which do not contradict but rather complement one another, the unity of the Spirit and the unity of the faith. The Holy Spirit teaches us through God-appointed pastors and brings us to the unity of the faith, which, of course, is doctrinal in nature. The faith involves doctrine. It is an entire system of divinely revealed truth. We are to heartily reject false doctrine, gratefully embrace sound doctrine, and thus enjoy the blessings of fellowship within the body. This is certainly contrary to the notion that the doctrine should be minimized in order to promote fellowship, a concept not uncommon among those who oppose separation on doctrinal grounds, thinking they are promoting Christian unity. God is not pleased with the promiscuous and unchallenged presence of evil doctrine among his people. When vital doctrines of the Christian faith are rejected and heterodox views are either embraced or tolerated within a fellowship that purports to be Christian, the obedient believer must leave. He must follow his Lord without the camp bearing his reproach. Now he concludes by giving one of the more uh, interesting accounts of a prominent Christian who at the end of his life, near the end of his life, made an amazing decision. I'm going to separate uh, from what he'd been involved with for many years. And uh, it is given in Richard Ellsworth Day's biography of Henry Parsons Crowell, who was the leader and founder of the Quaker Oats Company. Now, Mr. Crowell had been a lifelong member of the Presbyterian Church. He had been a member, an elder of the Fourth Presbyterian Church in Chicago. He was an active board member of Moody Bible Institute, and he was a very large supporter of that uh, institution. In May of 1943, when Crowell picked up a Chicago newspaper, 
He read that the notorious liberal and president of Union Theological Seminary in New York, Henry Sloan Coffin, had been elected moderator of the Northern Presbyterian Church. Well, under the faithful Bible teaching of William R. Newell, years before, Crowell had learned about the nature of apostasy and about the believer's responsibility to separate from uh, apostate doctrine. And to make matters worse, Crowell's own pastor had been the man who seconded the motion to nominate the liberal coffin to this high office. Now, let me just say that when I worked for Kriegel, I had to contact Union Theological Seminary uh, in New York because of, uh, it was one of the seminaries that we were trying to uh, get books to uh, that were fundamental books. They would basically just scoff and laugh at anything fundamental at all. It was a God-mocking, still is, a God-mocking liberal institution that uh, is given over to training up uh, uh, infidels. Now, Kroll at the time was a very elderly man when this went down in his own life. So he set a time period aside where he could pray and ask God what God would have him do. His biographer tells of his agony of soul, what was the will of God for him. Perhaps he ought to advise with friends. He decided against that. He knew that many who affirmed loyalty themselves would beg the question for him to be loyal to the Presbyterian denomination or a bromide of it will come out all right, just be patient. He said that's what his people kept saying. Just be patient. It'll all come out in the end. He examined the evidences that Dr. Coffin was a liberal and the evidences came from his own statements. So on June 25, 1943, Mr. Crowell dictated a letter to his pastor, Dr. Anderson. It read in part this way. The conclusion that I have finally reached is not in harmony and sympathy with the decision of the assembly in electing Dr. Henry Sloan Coffin, the president of Union Theological Seminary of New York, as moderator of the assembly. In arriving at this decision, I believe the delegates have made a serious error and one difficult to understand. How could a majority of them cast their ballot for a man known to be an outstanding modernist for many years, as well as president of Union Theological Seminary of New York City ever since 1926? I have protested against modernism before and have done many things that I hope might check it, but the present issue and its apparent popularity indicate that the trend is now stronger than ever before. There is one further protest that I can make, and as I have been led to it through prayer, communion, and fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, I make it known to you I desire to sever all relationship that I may have with the Presbyterian denomination. I hereby resign from membership in Fourth Presbyterian Church of Chicago and retire from the office of elder in said church, which service of love I've prized for many years. Something should be done at once to stop this drift toward modernism, and I have thought of nothing better than for me to withdraw from the church as a definite forceful protest against changing standards and the weakening of the church's loyalty and devotion to Jesus Christ. And I know for fact that we have many people in this church who had to make a heart-wrenching decision to leave a denomination because they love Jesus Christ and they love the Word of God. I want to tell you, you'll never regret that decision. You've made a powerful separatist decision and you shine bright in the heavenlies. Because when you base a decision, I'm going to leave because I'm not being fed the scriptures. I'm going to leave because this is moving away from what is right and reverent in the sight of God. 
You certainly please God by that kind of separatist decision. That concludes our study on biblical separation. Thank you for going through it. Next week, we'll study a new doctrine, begin a new doctrine. It's the doctrine of biblical prayer. And I think you're going to find this a fascinating journey. Hope to see you on Sunday because we have some great studies. Good night. The Lord bless you.